0: This program has been made possible through the support of Cruise, driving cities forward through their autonomous vehicle development. Learn more about how Cruise is transforming the future of transportation through improving our cities by building safe, shared, and all electronic self driving cars. Visit them online at GetCruise.com.
1: Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Chris Prentice. I'm first vice president of the American Association of Visually Impaired Attorneys. i like to welcome you to our, our conference this year as part of the American Council of the Blind, and uh, we are pleased to have our annual Supreme Court update, and it will be quite an update this year, quite a few uh, interesting cases to review. And to do that, I'd like to introduce the uh, Honorable uh, Professor of Law from St. Mary University in San Antonio, Texas, Bill Pyatt. He's also uh, a well-accomplished author as well, and he can tell you about his latest books and uh, but he's he's here to give us a Supreme Court update. So, Bill, I'm not going to take any more t- your time. Go for it, and uh, we look
0: forward to your presentation. Thank you, Chris. Uh, thank you, Steve, Deb, and everyone. I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you. I'm honored to be with you here again. And in particular, I want to thank Chris, uh, not only for the introduction, but for his wonderful friendship over the decades. Um, several decades ago, Chris and I used to travel around West Texas, handling plaintiffs' civil rights cases. And I learned some important legal and life lessons talking to Chris. And then even most recently, uh, the last time we did this presentation, I learned a really important life lesson from Chris. It was about an hour before the presentation or so I thought. Chris called and said, aren't you gonna join us? And I said, yeah, it's got about an hour. And he said, uh, uh, no. Eastern Time is an hour ahead of Central Time. So I told him I appreciated that. I still remember that lesson, so I'm on time today. So thank you, Chris. As a matter of format today, I want to talk about cases. I probably will encourage you, as we discuss each case, to join in that discussion. I'll try to keep track of the time so that we can accomplish all we need to do in this uh, hour and 15 minutes. But just briefly, I think this year, uh, the Supreme Court handed down some very significant decisions. I think the winners out of this whole process was, first of all, was the First Amendment, freedom of religion, freedom of expression. And then the court itself was also the winner. The court itself as an institution, uh, because the court I think has been able to preserve its role. Uh, it has demonstrated its ability to rise above or even ignore political consequences and function as a fully autonomous separate third branch of the United States government. And in addition to awarding the winners of this year's Supreme Court term, I think one of the winners, the best case, the winner for the best case that the Supreme Court decided not to take is challenges to the presidential election. Um, In deciding not to take the case, The court relied on the history and tradition, relied on the concern about the political ramifications, and given the political climate, might have even taken into account and consideration the wisdom of ancient music. You know what I'm talking about. You gotta know when to hold, know when to fold up, know when to walk away, know when to run. And in the Supreme Court's case, they could alter that to say... You got to know which case is not to touch with the 10-foot pole in order to protect the integrity of the third branch of government. But anyway, that's a little bit of editorializing. You can agree or disagree. But let's start talking about some of the cases. I got three biggies right off the bat that we'll talk about, maybe and entertain questions and discussion, and then we'll try to do a quick summary of some of the others. So, number one on the list that I want to discuss with you is Fulton versus Philadelphia. Significant in a number of contexts. Number one, because of the ringing defense of the First Amendment, but also because it is a unanimous decision. And in an era where there's concern that political ideology is ruling the court and the fear that all the decisions were gonna be six three splits, this is a stirring example of the Supreme Court of the United States, in my opinion, finding a way to come to a consensus and announce a decision that gives little room for criticism other than on the merits of the determination, but little grounds for criticism of the politics on the court. Okay, so Fulton, really interesting case. Uh, It discusses the foster care system in Philadelphia. So Philadelphia enters into a, a standard contract with agencies to place children with foster families. The agencies do the equivalent of what we would call a home study, and then make recommendations to the court on adoptions. One of the responsibilities that each agency has, including the Catholic Social Services agency in Philadelphia, is to certify prospective foster families. The agency has to apply state criteria and then make a recommendation. Catholic Social Services has been in this business, that is, the business of providing foster care services for over 50 years. It adheres to the traditional view of the Catholic Church, that it needs to serve the interests of the church, the interests of the poor. Now, because it's an entity of the Catholic Church, it also, of course, adheres to the religious beliefs of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church holds the belief that marriage is a sacred bond between a man and a woman. Because of that religious belief, Catholic social services announced that it would not certify unmarried couples regardless of their sexual orientation, nor would they certify married couples of the same sex. Now in Philadelphia, that doesn't mean people can't go through an adoption process if they're a same sex couple. It just means that they can go to another foster agency. And in fact, during all of the years of its existence, no same-sex couple ever, ever sought certification from Catholic Social Services. But what did happen is that in 2018, there was a newspaper investigation in the story. And it announced publicly that the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, through its Catholic Social Services entity, would not consider prospective foster parents in same-sex marriages. So as a result of that announcement, calls for an investigation followed. The city ultimately told Catholic Social Services that if it did not agree to certify same-sex couples, the city would no longer refer refer children to the agency or enter a full foster care contract with it. The city said that refusal to certify same-sex couples violated both the non-discrimination provisions in the city's fair practices ordinance, as well as a provision in the actual contract that the city entered into with the agency. All right, so Catholic Social Services and three foster parents filed suit seeking to enjoin the city's referral freeze. They argued the city's action violated the free exercise and free free speech clauses of the First Amendment, went to the Supreme Court of the United States ultimately, nine zero decision. There were some some, uh, separate opinions, but The bottom line nine to zero, the court holds that the refusal of Philadelphia to contract with Catholic social services to provide foster care services unless Catholic social services agreed to certify same sex couples as foster parents violates the free exercise clause of the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. All right, as you can imagine, while there was no controversy within the court in the ultimate holding, There has been some political discussion and will continue to be political discussion. And the court is going to continue to have to deal with the extent to which the free exercise of religion clause permits or allows people as a matter of religious belief and practice to withhold services from same sex couples. Uh, And again, nine zero. All right, we may want to add, discuss this when we get into some other cases, but before I move on, does anybody have anything you want to say or add to, to this discussion? It doesn't have to just be a monologue. You can you can sing if you want to, too. It'll embarrass Chris, but you can. Okay, what I might do is ask you if you uh, could please, as, as moderator, could you let them in or could you, the person just ask the question? Uh,
1: hi there. I thought there was um, a particular... Um, nuance to this case that in the city ordinance there was actually an exception clause and that the catholic church actually fell into that exemption and that's why the supreme court voted nine to zero was because the city ordinance actually had this special clause in there that provided as opposed to it being a first amendment issue
0: um i think the clause does help but i think and i don't have the whole opinion in front of me but i do recall that they did specifically mention first amendment i think it does have a constitutional basis but arguably it has a limited basis because of that clause and maybe be may have a limited basis in that they're only talking about foster care uh up to the importance of child placement thank, thank you okay all right let's talk about another decision This is the Mahanoy Mahanoy Area School District versus BL. This is another important First Amendment decision and it's an eight to one decision. In this case, the dissenter was Justice Thomas. So again, we don't see necessarily, we don't see an ideological split and we do see another, what I believe to be a very strong defense of the First Amendment. In a context of a high school student making comments on social media, away from the school, obviously, that involved officials at the school that the school took offense to. The the student who's been identified publicly in the media, but in the cases just referred to as BL, I think she was a freshman and she failed to make the school's varsity cheerleading squad. And so off campus, she was at a local convenience store. After she had found out she wasn't gonna get to be on the varsity squad, she was very upset, obviously. So she posted a couple of images to Snapchat. And that allows obviously, as you know, users can post temporary images with selected friends. Well, BL's posts charitably expressed her frustration with the school, with the school's cheerleading squad Uh, One of the posts contained a single-digit salute and included language, which I won't repeat. You've heard the word before. It starts with F, and made gestures. She she wasn't happy. I mean, there's no way to to say it any other way. She wasn't happy. She wanted to be a cheerleader. She wasn't going to get to be a cheerleader, and she got upset and reacted in a childish way, but she's a child. So school officials learned of the posts they got really upset they suspended bl from being on the junior varsity cheerleading squad for the upcoming year so not only does she not make the varsity but now she gets kicked off the junior varsity so this time uh bl and her parents tried talking to school it didn't work and so instead of posting more snapchats uh bl and her parents filed suit in federal court and they had a number of arguments but again this was the first amendment they said B.L. was being punished, and she was being punished for her speech, and the speech included not only the actual verbal speech, but the symbolic speech of the gestures, the hand signals, et cetera. All right, so it gets in front of the district court. The district court gives B.L. and her parents grants an injunction and orders the school to reinstate her to the cheerleading team. And... um, In the defendant's attempt to get the case dismissed on summary judgment, the district court finds that her punishment violated the First Amendment, finding that her Snapchats had not caused any disruption at the school. I think everybody would agree that speech by a student that disrupts education is not protected speech under the First Amendment. The Third Circuit affirms that holding, but the panel majority said Tinker, Tinker versus Des Moines. Remember the kids that go to school with uh, black armband, protesting the Vietnam War, the military. Third Circuit says Tinker doesn't apply because schools have no special license to regulate student speech occurring off campus. And the court holds that public schools do have a special interest in regulating some off-campus speech. But those special interests that the school district offered were not sufficient to overcome her First Amendment interest in free expression. Okay the court reasons that Tinker upheld indicated schools have a special interest to regulate on campus student speech that quote materially disrupts work or involves substantial disorder or invasion of the rights of others the court concludes though that these special characteristics that don't that, that give schools additional license don't always disappear when the speech takes off place circumstances in fact could implicated school's regulatory interests, such as severe or serious bullying, or harassment targeting particular individuals, or threats aimed at students or teachers, or the failure to follow rules concerning lessons or the writing of papers, uh, cheating, uh, improper use of computers, breaches of school security devices. All of these would be areas where schools could regulate student speech even in a media platform, even when the speech originates off campus. But when you're talking about off-campus speech, the court says, first of all, schools rarely stand in local parentis when a student speaks off campus. They don't have that same control as they would have or the same concerns when the student is actually in their physical presence. And second, from a student speaker perspective, regulation of off-campus speech coupled with regulations of on-campus speech would mean that all of the speech that a student utters in a 24-hour period on or off campus would be subject to review and discipline by the school officials. And then third, the school has no interest itself in protecting unpopular, I mean, the school itself does have an interest in protecting the students' unpopular expression because The court says, America's public schools are the nurseries of democracy. The court says that these three features of much off-campus speech means that the leeway the First Amendment grants to schools in light of their special characteristics is diminished and probably limited to those circumstances that I discussed earlier, where there is bullying, there's harassment, there's cheating, those kind of things. But not just kind of off-the-cuff expressions of frustration, even when accompanied by but otherwise would be considered improper gestures and speech, First is gonna protect that. Okay. Um, so another big win for the First Amendment, another substantial decision decided on an eight to one, not on an ideological line basis. Uh, further, I think cementing the court's role and public recognition that the court is gonna serve as the ultimate arbiters of some of these important issues. Okay, this case, Full disclosure, it's gonna help me in a case that I'm handling on behalf of a person that I know in another state. I will not identify this person by name. But this person is a student in a university, a state university. The person in fact is enrolled in a PhD program. A lot of the work I've been doing recently has been involving the rights of indigenous people and including indigenous people who are not recognized Their tribes are not recognized by the federal government of the United States. So this friend and client of mine who is indigenous, but who does not belong to a recognized tribe, but nonetheless belongs to an entity that is recognized by the state in which he lives as being indigenous, recognized by the state but not the federal government. He is concerned because people who do not believe that you're indigenous, if you're not a member of a recognized tribe have been attacking him and others calling them pretendians. He responded in a social media post, not directed at anybody in particular, not using obscenity, making any threats, to debunk this notion that pretendians are not indigenous. And I don't want to bore you. I've got written a whole lot of stuff on this since Chris has offered me opportunity to plug a book. Uh, My latest book in print is published by the Carolina Academic Press. It's called Slavery in the Southwest, Canisoto Identity, Dignity, and the law and it involves the rights of the descendants of slaves of Indian slaves who intermarried with the Spanish were held as slaves and now they're they're fully indigenous some live in communities organized communities but they can't get federally recognized because they can't point to which tribe they descended from and they can't do that because their ancestors were kidnapped and there's no records or they were sold at slave markets without records being kept of the tribes but anyway I'm getting a little off going back to my friend's comments so he He says, no, wait a minute, you're wrong. And he he didn't direct at anybody. He said in clear, forceful terms that it was wrong to attack people on this pretending label. Well, another PhD student took offense at his language, even though it wasn't directed at her. She demanded an apology from him. She got the chair of the department to demand an apology from him. He apologized if she was offended, but he said, I didn't direct it at you or anybody, and I don't back off from the main defense I've put... About my own identity well that wasn't enough the chair calls him in and says or communicates with him and says basically you either give a full apology and voluntarily now withdraw from the phd program or we're going to kick you out so he decided not to do either of those things he decided to get legal counsel long story short we're involved in legal proceedings i won't discuss it all it's still up in the air but he has not been kicked out of his phd program and he continues to make the assertions that he says are protected by the first amendment and while all this was going on, the Supreme Court was hearing or considering Mahanoi. And now we've got Mahanoi, which I think is even stronger support for his position because he's not even a public school student, subject to any type of in local parent's control. He is a full adult in a PhD program. Anyway, all right, so that's number two case that I wanted to talk about. Here's another case that the Supreme Court decided that is going to continue to have ramifications and I think is going to continue to draw interest because it involves state election standards. Okay, and I'm talking about the case and I may mispronounce his name. The Attorney General of the state of Arizona is the plaintiff. Brnovich, I believe, is the way he pronounces his name. And if not, I apologize to him. Brnovich versus the Democratic National Committee. And this involves recent changes to the voting laws in the state of Arizona. And the reason it might be important uh, and relevant is because of the current discussion going on about the rights of states and the appropriate roles of states in regulating election laws. And so, let's see. Let me back up and give you a little bit of a background a refresher. i grab my comma book. So you all recall that The 15th Amendment, one of the important post-Civil War pronouncements, ratified in 1870, provides, has two sections. Section 1 provides, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. That's section 1. Section 2 says, The Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. So what the Congress of the United States did in 1965, pursuant to the 15th Amendment, particularly Section 2, Congress enacted the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And it's a complicated statute, but in in oversimplified terms, it gives federal courts power to entertain jurisdiction and impose restrictions. Against states who have, who exhibit a pattern of discrimination in their voting rules adversely involving, directed at, or maybe even adversely affecting minorities, race minorities, in their exercise of the franchise. Okay, so that's a little bit of the background. And the fact that Congress can enforce this article by appropriate legislation is the reason that Congress had the jurisdiction to enact the Voting Rights Act. All right, let's see. I'm kind of getting a little bit tangled with my papers here. And then going forward, let's just think about this. States have the power to decide voting places, time, etc. under the Constitution, but it's not absolute. So Article 1, Section 4, again in our Con Law Primer or Refresher, section four the first paragraph reads the times places and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof but the congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations except as to the place of choosing senators okay so you got the 15th amendment you got the voting rights act and then lurking in the background for possible future legislation involving the election franchise is Article 1, Section 4 that gives that power to the states, but allows the Federal Congress to make or alter the regulations. All right, so let's see what was going on in Arizona. Let's see what the new statutes actually involved and what they actually did. I caution my students not to become bumper sticker con law advocates, not just to listen to the talking points on either side, but do what the courts do and that is in a clash of adversaries, in a case or controversy, where the adversaries present a factual basis, take a look at what the actual facts are because the law is applied to those facts to come up with the ruling. You don't have time on a bumper sticker to identify all the facts. And the bumper sticker, by definition, is trying to quickly persuade you without giving you all the facts or all the basis. Query whether it's persuasive or not, I don't know. Um, I've never driven by a car, look at the sticker and decide, you know what, I think I will begin to coexist. may affect some people that way. Sometimes with my students, I hear the bumper sticker and repeat it as a talking point, and they haven't even gone through the facts in the case. So let's look and see actually what Arizona did that the Supreme Court said was not a violation of the 15th Amendment of the Voting Rights Act. Now, this case is a little bit more controversial in that it was a 6-3 decision. It was a split along ideological lines, and it contains some pretty strong language in the dissents. But it's a 6-3 decision, that's the determination of the Supreme Court of the United States. Let's go back and let's look and see what Arizona actually did. Okay, generally, the law makes it pretty easy to vote in Arizona. If you're in Arizona, You can cast your ballot in the traditional way by going to a polling place on election day at a traditional precinct or voting center in your county of residence. But there's some other provisions. Arizonans can cast an early ballot by mail up to 27 days before an election. If you're in Arizona, if you're an Arizona voter, you can also vote in person at an early voting location in each county. What this case involved were challenges under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, to some aspects of the state's regulations that concerned precinct-based election voting and early mail-in voting. So first of all, Arizonans who vote in person on election day in a county that uses the precinct system under the law that's been challenged have to vote in the precinct to which they are assigned based on their address. If the voter votes in the wrong precinct, the vote isn't counted. Okay, so that's one provision that was challenged. Second provision, relevant provision being challenged. For Arizonans who decide to vote early by mail, the statute makes it a crime for any person other than a postal worker, an elections official, or a voter's caregiver, a family member, or a household member, member to knowingly collect an early ballot, either before or even after it has been completed. All right, so the assignment to precincts, state explains that's a way orderly to make sure that people are voting where they're supposed to vote, that they're not voting in more than one area. And the early mail provision, the anti so-called anti-voter harvesting provisions, aimed at preventing people from being exploited and having people go collect ballots and fill them in or collect ballots, look at them, and then discard the ones they didn't want to have included. The state did say, you don't have to deliver it yourself. You don't even have to collect, Have you, you can have somebody else collect the ballot if it's a postal worker, so you can mail it an elections official or a voter's caregiver, family member, or household member. Those people could collect your ballot and make sure that it gets delivered. But strangers, political operatives, neighbors, no, you can't do that. The attempt to, by the state, is to maintain control, reduce the possibility of voter fraud, ensure fair elections. That was what the state says. The Democratic National Committee said both the state's refusal to count ballots cast in the wrong precinct and its ballot collection restriction had an adverse and disparate effect on the state's American Indian, Hispanic, and African American citizens. That would violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, they said. They also said that the ballot collection restriction was, quote, enacted with discriminatory intent and thus violated both Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and the 15th Amendment. And when it got to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court says that neither of these policies violate the act. The act was not enacted with a racially discriminatory purpose. All right, so the Voting Rights Act went into effect in 1965. It was amended, and section two of that was amended in 1982 in ways that had been interpreted to require proof of discriminatory intent. Now, the however, now the language, I'm sorry, the Congress amended the language that had been interpreted to require proof of discriminatory intent. So now Section two A uses the phrase prohibiting uh, restrictions that in a manner in a manner which results in denial or abridgment of the right to vote on account of race or color. And in section two B it explains what has to be shown to establish a Section Two violation. Section two is violated only where, quote, the political processes leading to nomination or election are not, quote, equally open to participation by members of the relevant protected group, quote, in that its members have less opportunity than other members of the electorate to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of the choice. Okay, so the court goes through an analysis, a factual analysis, considering that Section 2B requires a consideration of the, quote, totality of circumstances, and they concluded there wasn't a violation. They pointed out, for example, that uh, only a very small number, I mean, less than one, per, about 1% of African-Americans, Hispanics, voted in the wrong counties, therefore lost their vote. But one half of 1% of white voters did too. So there really wasn't that much difference. And because it was such a relatively small number of people, it couldn't be shown that the purpose was to discriminate on the basis of race against people who were voting in the wrong precinct. And the court went through some more factual analysis. The dissent, however, was quite vocal in accusing the the majority of gutting the Voting Rights Act. And that dissent is probably going to serve as the basis for their views if new restrictions in other states are under consideration. For example, my home state of Texas, well, actually I was born in New Mexico, but I've lived in Texas since 1988. So you've all heard the national news. Texas was considering some amendments to its voting provisions. They they were sponsored by Republicans, Democratic members of the House of Representatives of the House of Texas objected and fled the jurisdiction in order to avoid there being a quorum. If there's no quorum, the legislature can't act. So there's a 30-day session. The clock is ticking. The governor has said 30 days runs and there's been no action. He'll... Uh, create another special session. He'll call another special session, which is his power. Uh, So far, the Democrats have not indicated any willingness to return. They instead are asking the federal Congress to enact federal statutes that would outlaw the attempts that the state of Texas is making. And again, I'm not taking political sides, but there are facts here that are relevant. You've heard the president of the United States say these are Jim Crow It's a Jim Crow law in Texas. Um, If you look at the provisions of the proposed new act, Texas already has early voting. The new act, I believe, would extend that to 12 days. You have 12 days of early voting. The home state of the president of the United States, Delaware, you know how many days of early voting they have? That's right, zero. Uh, The new legislation in Texas was, in one of the provisions is going to outlaw 24-hour voting. Okay, during the pandemic, Houston, I think, was the only place in Texas that created this 24-hour drive through voting. They did so contrary to state statutes, but the ballots were counted. A couple of other uh, cities, including San Antonio, considered doing that, but decided it would be too expensive and too unwieldy, too many potential problems with trying to operate all night, drive-through ballots. You can vote by drive-through in Texas, if you have a disability that prevents you from going in, but you can't just drive through out of a matter of convenience during the pandemic, I guess. Houston at least decided to look the other way, but now the state of Texas says, no, we're going to try to maintain a more orderly restriction. I'm not aware of any jurisdiction in the country that allows 24-hour drive-through voting. I think it's a bit of a bumper sticker analysis to say that these provisions I've just identified are Jim Crow statutes type approaches, but The political process here will play out, political theater will play out, query whether the Congress of the United States is going to take action. Congress of the United States right now is in a state of gridlock. Ironically, just like the state of Texas legislature is now in a state of gridlock, but for maybe on the opposite side. And the Congress, as you know, legislation has to pass both the House and the Senate and then be signed off on by the President of the United States. The House, operates under a majority vote system. The Senate for decades and decades has operated under a 60 vote requirement. The filibuster rules allow people, allow a a political party that has less than majority to stop legislation from advancing unless 60% of the Senate decides to shut off closure. Right now the Senate is split 50-50 as you know. Vice President who is a Democrat can cast the deciding vote. Right now, any attempt to change voting statutes on a federal level would probably be met with a filibuster. If the Senate decides to abolish the filibuster, it would pass probably on a 50 to 51 vote with the uh, vice president casting the tie breaking vote. It would be challenged in the courts. The Constitution probably gives the Congress of the United States the power to enact those regulations uh, to overturn state voting restrictions. Texas is not the only state right now, as you know, and Arizona that are considering or have enacted changes to voting rules. The concern was that during the pandemic, local officials exercising emergency powers that they may or may not have had changed the rules without action of the legislature. The legislatures are now stepping in to try to codify the rules that generally existed pre-pandemic, but perhaps with some other changes. Undoubtedly, some of those changes are put in for political advantage. Undoubtedly, some of those changes will have a disparate impact. Any voting restriction is going to disparately impact some community or other for no other reason. As the court points out, for resources, housing patterns, locale. There's no perfect legislative system to come up with to regulate voting. This is not perfect, and this is a 6-3 decision that is going to continue to call, turn the calls to expand the court, do some other things that probably are not gonna happen, but are gonna create political turmoil and gives me a lot to talk about in my constitutional law class. And gives my students on both sides and all sides an opportunity to share their bumper sticker views. Okay, so I'm not gonna insult you by saying you have bumper sticker views, but if you have views that differ from mine, I wanna hear them. And if there's perspectives we need to hear before we move on up, I wanna make sure we do that too. Regina.
2: Good Hello. morning from California. I am going to ask a couple of questions. First of all, I'm not a lawyer. I want to say that at the get-go. So, you know, um, I'm coming from a more lay perspective. But I am an advocate for civil rights of all kinds, including disability and race or ethnic background. So are you saying that the defense or or Well, so was the case, who is the plaintiff and who is the defendant in the voting rights case? So I say the proper terms. Okay,
0: the plaintiff, the one that brought the suit, uh, the way it gets to the Supreme Court is the attorney general of the state of Arizona is named as the first party in the case in a lawsuit against the Democratic National Committee. The Democratic National Committee actually filed suit. And the Democratic National Committee had won lower court decisions. And so when it gets up on appeal, the attorney general is the one who's listed first because he's the one that's bringing the appeal. And he's bringing the appeal on behalf of the state of Arizona. Okay.
2: So um, I'm understanding that the attorney general of Arizona challenged the the voting rights restrictions that no. the legislature put in place?
0: No, what happened is the Democratic National Committee and others filed a lawsuit against Arizona, okay. asking, asking a federal court to say that their statute is unlawful, that it violated the Voting Rights Act. The attorney general of Arizona responded, defends the suit and says, no, we didn't. Okay. The The Democratic National Committee won the lower cases. Then when it gets up to the Supreme Court, it's the attorney general who is listed first because he's the person who is appealing. He is the appellant. And and by the way, Regina, here's a little bit of a plug. My law school has gotten approval to have a completely online, fully accredited juris doctorate program. If you wanted to be a lawyer <laughs> and you wanted to attend Saint Mary's University School of Law in San Antonio by next year, you would be able to do that completely online. <laughs> So just OK, that, just put, but it sounds like you might not even know need to do that. You probably have a better understanding right off the bat.
2: Well, what I'm going to ask is, are you saying that what the Democratic Committee offered was just a bumper sticker argument? And is there a reason you didn't outline that argument for us?
0: OK, what they said, I'll, I'll go through it with you. It was a losing argument. But let me say here's what they said. They said. Oh, here's what. No, they didn't use a bumper sticker. Here's the bumper sticker argument.
2: These changes. Okay, no, I didn't. I don't want to know that. I'm sorry. Okay. I, I actually specifically asked for the argument presented before the Supreme Court, even though it lost. Because as you know, dissenting arguments have value, especially in the area of civil rights.
0: Yes and no, but they're not the law.
2: I understand, but they do have value, and I'll cite the Dred Scott decision.
0: But they're not the law.
2: I understand, but I do want to know the argument that was presented okay. specifically take, for a reason.
0: Okay, you asked me two questions, actually. You asked me what their arguments were, whether I thought they were bumper stickers. So let me ask the, answer a the second. No, I don't think these are bumper stickers. What I identified as a bumper sticker argument is these statutes are Jim Crow. That's bumper sticker. Here's what the Democratic National Committee said. They said that both the state's refusal to count the ballots in the wrong precinct and the ballot collection restriction had an adverse and disparate effect on the state's American Indian, Hispanic, and African American citizens, and that violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. What the majority opinion said is, as a matter of fact, it did not have an adverse and disparate effect. It did not. They showed statistically it did not. Any more than any restriction is going to have a disparate impact on somebody, depending on their resources, location, et cetera but the court specifically concluded it wasn't an adverse and disparate effect. And then they took a look at the standard by which Voting Rights Act cases are going to be examined. And they said that the core is a requirement that voting be equally open. So as long as it's equally open, it's not going to be a violation of the Voting Rights Act.
2: Okay. So when people enact civil rights laws that in, that um, violate civil rights, generally they have couched them in other things like, and I'm going to do some historical stuff. So when they said you had to read the Constitution or they had poll taxes, yeah. they didn't say they were targeting African Americans. Absolutely. And some of that affected poor white people. Absolutely. Essentially, because there were a lot of people that didn't read at the time. So although it was aimed at African Americans, Specifically, it did did as, so there's, I understand, de jure and de facto. So although it wasn't legislated as such, the the reality of how it was shaking out uh, looked as though it might affect everybody. But everyone knew, including the people that legislated, that this was to prevent former slaves from voting. And that's what's happening now. And I'm wondering if there's a different way to address that, because when you say it's available to all, it assumes that there's no disparity to begin with between racial or ethnic groups. And there's quite a bit of disparity in ability to to vote with different restrictions put on them. Not to mention there are, actual factual documents where people have said that their goal in these state legislatures is to cut out voting rights for anyone that might support a certain position. And they believe these are minorities, whether that's true or not, because I would argue that there's conservative African-Americans and conservative Latinos and all of that. But that's not how they're framing their legislation and so is is there an argument to be made for the fact that your if your motivation is stated in writing and in records and on debate on the floor even during the law just because it happens to affect certain white voters that doesn't mean that wasn't your intent and it's still discriminatory is that like a silly argument or no
0: it's a very good argument but here's the difficulty with the argument I'm absolutely convinced you're right there are some people who are acting in absolutely blatant racist hateful manners casting these votes but is it the majority and how do you ever prove what people's motivation is and does it really make any difference ultimately whether somebody is voting out of the purity of their heart depths of depravity when the statute is written What the court has to do is test it according to other statutes. And so the statute that's relevant is the Voting Rights Act. And the Voting Rights Act doesn't say we look in the individual minds of people. We don't get to see if five racists in a legislature of 150 people are spouting garbage. We don't get to conclude that that law is invalid because there's five idiots in the legislature. Basically what the Supreme Court is doing is it's throwing it back to the political process. It's throwing it back to the states. There is this federalism concept. We have a central federal government and then we have a, we have 50 state governments. And the state governments have some autonomy. They get the right to set the election result rules. Then the federal Congress can step in and overturn those. But unless the Congress does that, Congress has limited the review to the Voting Rights Act, and the language they use as interpreted by the court says, and I'm over-summarizing, but basically as long as the process is equally open. So if you have 27 days of early voting and it's open to everybody, it's equally open. Now, some people may not be able to take advantage of that because of their economic circumstances, their location, etc. If you have a provision that says you have to vote in your home county, Again, there's some people that are not going to be able to do that because they're ill and firm, don't know even where they're registered, but there's a burden on them to find that out and make the arrangements. And if they don't, there's, there's some value in letting the state decide mechanically how to conduct an election without having everything open to debate and discussion and accusations of fraud, et cetera, later on. So as long as these mechanisms are equally open, the Supreme Court majority is saying, the court is not going to overturn them under the Voting Rights Act. Now, I, you, the Plessy versus, I mean, the, uh, the early, the Jim Crow laws, the actual Jim Crow laws of voting, those all were in effect before the Voting Rights Act. Those practices were some of the things that led to the creation of the Voting Rights Act. Yes. But those, obviously, those mechanisms, those uh, literacy tests, which nobody except maybe a con law expert even then couldn't pass, when they're and they're directed at people, those were not open. Those, th- not everybody had to take the literacy test. They could select who got to take the test and who had to take the test. So it wasn't equally open. But again, Regina, think about going to law school. Think about well,
2: going- the separate but equal has some. Refi- I would I would advise people to reflect on the fact that the separate but equal equal argument was made for Plessy versus Ferguson. And thank you for your time.
0: <laughs> okay. Let's see. I see. Tim Hill has a hand up.
2: Uh, I just don't see how anybody
1: could not understand that these new restrictive voting laws in like Georgia and Florida, and and the ones they're trying to implement in Texas are not politically motivated, racially motivated, and also those discriminate against me as a, as a disabled person and. I just don't understand. They have to be, I mean, you know, Joe Biden wins Georgia, and all of a sudden, boom, we got restrictive voting laws. And the the second, I got a second question is, now, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was able to retain all her faculties until her death. What would happen if, say, a justice became dementia had dementia how could he be removed
0: okay the first question you you ask about the the motivation and the current statutes remember this a lot of the statutes came about because the rules were changed by administrative people by bureaucrats in view of the pandemic now the legislative action is the elected officials not the appointed bureaucrats it's the elected officials responding in a way that they think they need to act in order to guarantee election you know that if you have a safe and secure election it's going to minimize the accusations of fraud it's going to debunk any false claims that the elections were stolen a whole lot of reasons why you would want to make sure why you'd want to make sure that the elections were conducted in a fair and honest fashion but Before people jump to the conclusion that these laws are harsh, effectively aimed at minorities, take a look at the requirements right now in other states. Like I pointed out, Delaware, nobody's gonna accuse Delaware of having Jim Crow voting restrictions. Right now, you can't early vote in Delaware. That's gonna change next year, but you can't do that. Is Jim Crow enacted in Delaware? No, of course not. So in the same regard, many of the restrictions that are in the new statutes are no different than existing restrictions. So it's a, it's a but again, Congress is gonna have to resolve this and then the federal court system is gonna ultimately have to resolve it. Okay, now back on the issue of dementia. Supreme Court justices are appointed for terms of good behavior. There's not a mechanism other than impeachment for removing officials. I mean, theoretically, Theoretically, you could have some kind of an impeachment process, but right now what's going on is there is a political attempt to get Justice Breyer to withdraw from the court. He's, I think, 82 years old. He's been a consistent, clear, liberal voice all along. But people are, some people are concerned that if he stays on, he's going to die in office, and then, depending on the political makeup of the Senate, he might not get confirmed. Uh, his his successor might not get confirmed if there's a change in the political makeup of the senate there would they they have expressed concern that ruth bader ginsburg could have resigned retired earlier in the obama administration and he could have appointed a younger justice in that role so some are actually calling for Breyer to step aside so that uh president biden and the democratic senate right now could put a younger liberal in place justice breyer has been um uh, unwilling to go along with that. And you think about it this way, you've got like a freshman congressperson saying, you need to resign, you need to retire, you need to retire. And his Breyer. He is a member of a co-equal branch of government with a constitutionally guaranteed position, immune from those types of political pressures, respectfully declining to go along. And there's no indication that Justice Breyer is suffering from dementia. There is a mechanism for removing a president that allegedly suffers from dementia, that hasn't Hasn't been invoked. President Reagan temporarily stepped aside when he underwent surgery, so there are constitutional mechanisms. But I think we need to distinguish between constitutionally appropriate mechanisms and politically motivated attempts to remove somebody with whom you disagree, or with whom you agree, but you're afraid he's getting too old and you need somebody younger in that role.
1: But these restrictive voting law, uh, these voting, the restrictions on mail-in voting. Now these, I think, are. Discriminate against the
0: disabled. Okay. The the one in Arizona says you could have a household member or a caretaker, caregiver, or a postal employee handle the mailing process. So it does require that somebody have, who's not able to do the mailing themselves, it does require that they have somebody else help them. But the person that helps them can't be a political operative or a neighbor. It's, It's restricted to post employees, household members, or caregivers. We've got about another 15 to 20 minutes, so I'm going to just kind of speed up and go through some cases. And then what I might do is, as I get through them quickly, I'll see if anybody has any interest in commenting on on any other of the cases. So let me see. Uh, Here's another unanimous decision. NCAA versus Alston. A unanimous decision. The court rules that the National Collegiate Athletic Association limits that basically prohibit compensating college athletes violates a federal antitrust law and that's going to have important consequences for college sports and just on a practical level it means that athletes can now do product endorsements college athletes can do product endorsements i wonder what it's going to do to the dynamics of the team this is just me never was a college athlete but i just wonder on a team by definition it's a team so if somebody let's say a quarterback or in a basketball team point guard is getting all kinds of recognition. They're not doing it on their own. Somebody is blocking for that quarterback. Somebody is helping set up the plays with with the point guard. And yet one or two people are going to get name recognition and are going to be able to make a lot of money. I just wonder what that does to the dynamics. Forget the the implications for college sports. And I also wonder what will happen if smaller schools, their athletes are probably not going to get the big name product endorsements. And I wonder if it's going to put more pressure on The smaller schools to try to attract student athletes. We don't know, we don't see, but the Supreme Court unanimously says the the antitrust laws prohibit the NCAA from limiting their compensation. Okay, let's see. Uh, An interesting labor law case that also involves the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment. Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid. Uh, The Supreme Court (laughs) struck down uh, 6-3 A regulation that gave union organizers a right to visit farm workers on agricultural fields which is the private property of the growers the court found that a 1975 california measure that allowed and required that access violated the due process rights of the growers they held it to be a physical taking of property on a temporary basis but a physical taking without due process without compensation to require the private growers to open their fields to union organizers. All right, let's see. Uh, Another, an an interesting human trafficking case. Uh, Again, here's another plug for a book. I've written a book and I teach a course on human trafficking. Nestle USA is allegedly committing human trafficking and labor trafficking abuses in the Ivory Coast. A group of six citizens of Mali accused the companies of obtaining their cocoa from plantations that relied on forced labor, uh, particularly forced child labor. So some of the laborers brought a lawsuit and the justices declined to hear it, saying there's no jurisdiction in the federal court for abuses that were allegedly committed in the Ivory Coast. But if you ever become real concerned about human trafficking, sex trafficking, labor trafficking, you should take a look at the products that are allegedly the result of forced labor, child labor, just horrible labor practices. I happen to love chocolate and cocoa. I don't know how you could ever guarantee that it's not the result of forced labor. There are some that will put up on their product that it's a result of fair labor practices. How do you know that? Uh, Diamonds, mined by child laborers and forced laborers. Uh, Tuna fish, a lot of times acquired uh, in the South Pacific by fishing vessels where the workers are captives. They're not left off the boat except placed on an island where they can unload the cargo to process it and back on the ships for years at a time. But anyway, no jurisdiction in the United States to sue companies engaged in that in another country. All right, Let's see, and that was an eight to one decision. So another uh, Justice Alito was the only one who dissented. Let's see, uh, criminal law cases, 6-3 decisions the traditional conservative liberal split, Edwards versus Van Noy, justices hold. When the Supreme Court announces a new rules of criminal procedure that benefit defendants, those rules don't retroactively apply to people whose convictions are already final, six to three. Similarly, another criminal law case, this one involving juvenile offenders the question is whether or not it's a constitutional violation for judges or for yeah for judges to find juvenile offenders permanently incorrigible before sentencing them to life without parole. The court says no. The courts do not need to find them incorrigible before putting them away for life. Again, that was a six-three decision. Let me see. Uh, Here's a 5-4 decision. This one is split all over the place. The majority was liberals Sotomayor, Breyer and Kavanaugh. I mean, I'm sorry, liberals Sotomayor and Breyer joined by conservatives, Roberts, Kavanaugh and Alito in the majority and the dissenters, an interesting split of one liberal Kagan and three conservatives Barrett, Gorsuch, and Thomas. This involves the case of Penn East Pipeline versus New Jersey, 5-4 decision. The the Supreme Court basically removed a hurdle to uh, construction of the natural gas pipeline that would run through Pennsylvania and New Jersey. It allowed the pipeline developer to use the eminent domain powers of the federal government to take over state property that would be needed for the project. Federalism case... uh, power of the federal government to condemn private, uh, to condemn state property, basically on behalf of a private developer, 5-4 decision in favor of the developer. Uh, Let's see. 6-2 decision where Justice Barrett didn't participate, but again, it was an interesting split. The two dissenters were conservatives, Alito and Thomas, and the liberal justices Sotomayor, Kagan, and Breyer joined with conservatives or supposedly conservative sometimes Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Gorsuch ruling that Google did not violate U.S. copyright laws when it built its Android smartphone system by copying some computer code in Oracle's Java software platform, allowing programs to talk to one another. court said that Google's copying was a fair use of the Java material, and so it resulted in a 6-2 Split all over the place, non ideological, if you will, decision, which again, in my view, is good for the system of justice. Obviously, good for the people that want the case, but good for the Supreme Court's ability to say, look, we're not, we're not picking cases and deciding them on purely ideological bases, which again, I think would debunk earlier efforts to try to expand the number of members of the Supreme Court. Okay, oh, here's another First Amendment case. This one is on the traditional lines. It's another important First Amendment case. And it was the six conservative justices in the majority of the three liberals in the minority. Americans for Prosperity versus Bonta. Right. California required charities to file forms disclosing major contributors to tax to exempt charities. The Supreme Court when, when the challenge got to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court said that scheme infringes on the donor's First Amendment rights. Okay, so the bumper sticker response is, this is a Supreme Court allowing dark money into the political process. Uh, the bumper sticker approach is, this gives Republicans access to all this deep, dark money. Well, actually, Democrat deep, dark money is greater than Republican deep, dark money in the last election cycle. But this deep, dark money That was the same kind of an argument in the associational arguments where states in the South wanted the NAACP to be forced to turn over their membership roles. Identifying donors is identifying your membership. NAACP successfully argued on behalf of its members decades ago that doing that interferes with the associational rights under the First Amendment. Even though the First Amendment doesn't say specifically you have the right to associate, it does say you have the right to speak, to assemble peaceably, and that implies a right to associate with groups without being subjected to state disclosure of who everybody is. So that the state can allow criticism, attacks, and persecution of the people based on their political beliefs. So 6-3 decision, probably definitely a win for the First Amendment, Americans for Prosperity versus Quanta, but not a win for ideological balance because it was 6-3. Let me see. Uh here's another 8-0 decision unanimous decision again religious freedom case well this time it went against the person claiming religious freedom this was an 8-0 decision because justice barrett was not uh didn't participate she hadn't been sworn in in time the court rules unanimously but eight to zero that a group of muslim men i'm sorry i got that one backwards the court ruled a group of Muslim men could use a federal religious freedom law, the RFRA, to seek monetary damages from federal agents who allegedly placed them on a no-fly list, retaliating against them for the refusal to act as informants against their religious communities. So another another First Amendment win and a first and a win for the Supreme Court in maintaining a, a cohesive approach to some of these issues that kind of debunks the attitude that we have a purely ideological court. Now, that's not to say that there aren't political divisions on the court. There are. There always have been. There always will be. The selection process itself is political, where the president of the United States, himself or herself, an elected official, makes the recommendation, and the confirmation process requires the vote of the Senate of the United States. Now it's been the filibuster has been removed, so it still requires a majority vote ever since of the Senate of the United States. Until the last couple of decades, votes were in the Senate were relatively non-controversial. Um, even many conservatives voted to approve the appointment of liberals, vice versa. That's kind of fallen away in the current political battleground. Let me see if there's anything else I've overlooked. Oh, okay, here's another one. One more, and then I'll stop to see if there's any last questions or comments. And that involves the return, once again, to the Affordable Care Act to the Supreme Court of the United States. Actually, didn't quite get there. California versus Texas, split decision, seven to two, two conservative dissenters in effect, Gorsuch and Alito, but all the rest, including conservatives Thomas, Barrett, Kavanaugh, Roberts, they voted with the three liberals to preserve the Affordable Care Act for the third time. The Affordable Care Act is three and zero in the Supreme Court. This time, the court says the Republican challengers didn't have standing to bring the lawsuit because what had happened is you remember under the Affordable Care Act, Congress enacted it, required people to buy insurance, required employers to provide it, created a financial penalty for not for individuals not carrying health insurance. However, in, uh, in 2017, Congress removed that penalty. So there was a zero penalty. And as a result of not having a penalty attached, the plaintiffs argued that Congress didn't have the power to enact it because it was supposedly justified as being a taxation statute. But on the other hand, not having a penalty means there's no standing. You don't have a case or controversy. So on a 7-2 to two vote, the Supreme Court of the United States, and an ideological split, a big win for the Affordable Care Act, a big win, I think, for the continuing integrity, respect, and independence of the judiciary. Both seven to two, Affordable Care Act is still in play. Okay, I think that that pretty much nails or at least the discussion. I see a whole bunch of hands. Please, hello, yes.
3: Okay. Oh. Uh, professor I thank you again for a wonderful presentation i wanted to uh, bring up two issues if i could uh, number one to go back to the cedar point case and to just suggest that it it's troubling because the uh, degree of taking if there was a taking is so minuscule in light of the of uh, the public interest involved and in light of the inability of the organizers to reach the workers in any other way and in light of the historical precedent surrounding that kind of a mod- mod- uh, modulated approach
0: i think you i think there's a lot of validity to what you're saying there really isn't a practical way for the union organizers to contact these people except they can wait outside the field till the shifts over and then intercept the workers as they're either coming to work or or leaving from work but the statute forces the employers to make them give access on their property some, some people
3: have expressed concern uh, in the disability community, for example, that this decision might allow uh, private entities to broad access to testers. Uh,
0: okay, I think that's, that's an important concern.
3: And also, going
0: back to the Arizona case. Uh, I
3: think that uh, the the question of legislative intent, to the extent that it's uh, relevant, and and, uh, your analysis suggests that uh, in traditional ways we thought of it, it may be of minimal relevance uh, under uh, Section 2, but I think the question of legislative intent is a slippery one uh, in the case where, uh, as here and as in several states really, the legislatures have tipped their hands by indicating the belief that uh, Democrat and
0: minority are interchangeable concepts. I don't know that that's, I, I would probably disagree with you on that point. I mean, the recent Hispanic movement toward the Republican Party, uh, the concern, here, here's the problem. If you discriminate against somebody on the basis of politics, which everybody does all the time, all the redistricting cases, all the redistricting examples, they're always discriminating against people on the basis of their politics. Does that mean that just because Democrats happen to be heavily minority does that mean they're discriminating because of the race or is it discrimination on the basis of their their politics that's the problem yeah it is it is and then and then also you know how do you prove it i mean like i said if you got half a dozen idiots saying racist things that are motivating them that probably doesn't speak to the motivation of everybody else and legislative intent is always difficult to To conclude, unless there's a formal statement, we're enacting this because we want to engage in racism, this isn't going to happen. Probably any expression of intent is going to be, we're doing this because we think our vote has been diluted by the way the previous lines were drawn. That's probably mostly what's going to happen. When you think back, though, to the
3: redistricting these redistricting cases of the 60s, by West versus Sanders that group of cases, uh, can, can you say that to a certain extent the Supreme Court recognized a constitutional dimension to uh, political gerrymandering there because of the uh, political partisan breakdown between suburbs and cities at that time?
0: Yes, but it's a little bit more difficult now to make that identification. Uh, for one thing, races. Race issues are, are more difficult. It's more difficult to identify people on the basis of race because fortunately we're moving in a direction where identity is not going to be that easily discernible and people in fact will claim multiple racial identities. And eventually there may be the realization that we're not acting as a particular member of a race. We're acting as a member of a political party or a political union. That's probably an over-optimistic view. I know. There's no doubt that racism has played a terrible role in a lot of those decisions. Charles? Hi, Professor. Uh, It's good to talk to you again.
3: I am concerned about the the, uh, future of the
0: women's right to determine their own, uh, what happens to their body. Uh, With the addition of Barrett and the other conservatives, seems to me that the Skinner, Griswold, and Roe decisions are definitely in peril in the next well, session. You could be right. Let's look at, from, from the perspective of women's rights, let's look at the absolute worst scenario, which I don't think is going to happen. And the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. Well, actually, most of Roe v. Wade was already overturned by subsequent decisions. That initial trimester scheme was thrown out. But if Roe stands for the principle that a woman has a right to make an abortion decision, especially in the early stages of pregnancy, I don't think that's going to get overturned. But if it did, what's the worst case scenario? Does that mean that abortion automatically becomes illegal in the United States? And the answer is no. It means it goes back to the states for determination. Probably the vast majority of states would immediately enact protections and allow for an abortion. There would be a small handful that and I think this, I think would be a relatively small handful of states that would outlaw abortion, and as a result, then people would have this ultimate obligation to make a decision. Just it would be like with the death penalty, where if you absolutely have a conviction, the death penalty is wrong. Your option is to move away, try to try to change the law internally. If that doesn't succeed, move away. Texas has a death penalty. New Mexico doesn't. There's a number of critical life issues that have been entrusted back to the states although I don't think Roe's going to get overturned here's here's why it's a conservative majority conservative by definition means there's going to be great reticence to overturn precedent I think if anything there will be more willingness to accept state limitations that fall short of eliminating the abortion right altogether that's probably what's going to happen the next few years I've 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 read Justice Barrett's comments before, but again, remember, she's a conservative, and I don't think that she is going to come in and participate in in an overhaul completely, just like the concerns were during her judicial appointment. You recall people were saying, well, she's going to come in, and she's going to affirm Trump's election victory. Well, no, that didn't happen. She was with the group that said, "Now we don't want to talk about that. She's exercising judicial independence, and I think we probably have to have some confidence in our system and the jurists that are involved in it, And there's going to be decisions we don't like. There's a whole bunch of decisions I don't like. Guess what? That's the law. There's a whole lot of local decisions. Forget Supreme Court. There's speeding regulations sometimes. There's no turn sign uh, sign that I disagree with. Guess what? I got to obey them. So I think that she is not going to overturn it. And if it did, it wouldn't be as catastrophic as some folks imagine. It would have a horrible impact on the lives of women who can't immediately access abortion. But it would not criminalize abortion throughout the United States. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you guys. I I learn a lot from teaching, and that's why I teach. I learn even more when I talk with attorneys and people who have some immediate interest in this, other than just sitting in the classroom. And uh, I I thank you very much. I thank you, Chris, Steve, Deb, everybody involved in this whole process. I wish you well. And uh, God willing, maybe we'll have a chance to talk again next year.